This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Everybody, I am here with Sam Naka. You want to do it, buddy? (laughs) (laughs) Well, let's uh, Muscovich is how you say it. Muscovich. It's like Milady Muscovich. Yeah, it's I didn't Uh, I didn't make it up. I thought I think I said Makovich or something, so it was wrong. That's a standard. Yeah, not offensively wrong. Okay, cool. (laughs) Um, Well, I've uh, I've seen your work pop up for for quite a while. I actually. Right about the time I started Retro RGB, I started paying attention to who was writing posts, uh, just because I was wondering why some websites would have such amazing posts and some such terrible ones too. And that's what really kind of led me to to believe, or to, stupid as this might sound, it's led me to realize there are people writing articles. Um, so when I saw your name pop up the other day, I was like, "Hey, I've followed him before. He's you know seems like one of the good ones." And um, I very purposely didn't even really research your name because I like coming in, having a conversation as if we were at a coffee shop or a bar or something. So I know I've been following your work indirectly, but I'd love to hear your origin story and you know hear directly from you some of the stuff you've been involved in. Sure, yeah. Uh, I have been covering video games since 1996. I Woo. managed to secure a job when I was in high school because there was a cold call for teenagers to review video games for a newspaper where I lived in Dallas. And uh, turned out uh, I got paid well under scale, but uh, mostly at that point just uh, covered the N64 and Game Boy Color Beats uh, with a little bit of PC gaming here and there. I did not have the money or the uh, hardware access really to do much on the PC side, which I regret to this day. Uh, From there, though, Uh, I stayed in journalism after finishing college, uh, went on to doing arts and music journalism before moving to Seattle in 2007 and getting back into tech and games. And after doing a gaming column specifically for The Atlantic for a while, also The Stranger in Seattle, uh, I went on to become the tech culture editor over at Ars Technica, where I served for about a decade. And so Mm -hmm. right now, I'm basically doing that media world thing of, of... different freelancing and trying to put together a book someday and doing some copywriting on the side because the media world is a fascinatingly weird place. So I'm really happy to do little bits here and there. And you caught me uh, because I had started writing for Paste Magazine uh, Mm -hmm. because I was looking for a place to write about Analog Pocket again. And that all worked out. Uh, And that was an interesting opportunity to talk to Christopher Tabor over there. And you were one of the only folks who picked up that article and 
kind of read between certain lines, which I found fascinating. So, uh, been big fan yeah, of your um, channel. To quote, it's like a f- symphony. <laughs> I'm gonna, I'm gonna beep you that know, out. <laughs> I, I gotta say, I believe in N64 enthusiasm. However, you can get it. So, I'm not one to judge. Uh, but yeah. it's uh it's that's it's a whole interesting world but been a fan of your channel for a long time and so oh, it's really awesome when i just reached out and said hey nice article and you said hey do you want to talk so here we are now doing the thing yeah well i i want to go back through all of this because this stuff is always really interesting to me and funny enough when i was a kid in high school i had my first website at about 1996 called the emulatorium where oh, wow. i what do you believe? What a shock! Wrote articles about different emulators that were being updated and released, and linked people back to their sites. So essentially, it was retro RGB 1.0. You know, all those years ago. Uh, so we've both been in it for for quite a while. But what was it? What was it like as a high school kid getting to write articles? And what did they pay you? Normally, I would never just ask somebody's pay, but we're talking 30 years ago, so yeah, I feel yeah. like it's I feel like it's okay. <laughs> I got a whopping 25 dollars an article plus the game. And this was well before ethics and gaming uh, journalism was established. So I would almost instantly dish off. I got a lot of the Midway N64 games. I'm not sure. The Midway and Acclaim Nexus of like Mace the Dark Age and other uh, Mortal Kombat clones. Um, Iggy's Wrecking Balls, which was Acclaim trying to take the iguana from Iguana Studios and turn it into a mascot, uh, which is just... That was a whole mess. I would take these games and just go either to EB uh, Electronics Boutique or Funko Land and get the $7 of store credit possible. Really regret that now that we've entered a certain age of N64 collecting with not only original boxes, but they also had the not for resale tabs on them. So who even knows how much those would have gone for? But, you know, I was in it for the low. I mean, it was an interesting time because it was my first remote work job because I was also flipping burgers down the street uh, at the same time. Uh, I had an editor who I emailed with and I begged and begged and begged for specific titles uh, and would hope to get them in advance. Uh, Hilariously, I ran my part of the column until mm, 2001, which was the Dreamcast era. And that was an era in which if I wanted to get access to a game before it came out to review it for deadline, and I would write to my editor because he was the one handling all of the uh, shipping of physical games. Sometimes I'd reach out individually to gaming PR, but that was a trickier world for me as a teenager. I would also, I will admit, there were games I pirated for the Dreamcast. They had leaked on pub servers and they weren't out yet. And I would get that be- and I w- while I waited for the physical copy to arrive uh, and then get the review done in a timely manner, my editor would just go, how did you, did you beat the game? You, I just sent it i go no no i got i beat it it's okay so not you know we're this this many years later i don't feel completely ashamed of it but it was definitely one of those dicey things from i i guess as a as a i learned journalism trial by fire that was before i had finished my degree when i made moves like that that's something i would not do as a professional journalist now but um just that was a different era where (laughs) but it was the access was very different um now i think it's a lot easier to figure out exactly who to contact uh but back then it really was about white pages and yeah but let's be specific about what you just said you were told that you were getting a game sent to you you downloaded it first illegally but you did actually get the game sent to you and you did your job and that's it so i'm the same kind of dirty pirate you know my my favorite bands i will pre-order their stuff my favorite band i just pre-ordered it on itunes on vinyl and on cassette and i didn't check but if it had leaked i would have downloaded the illegal copy as well 
because I already paid for it three times. And it was the same thing. There was a whole bunch of like Wii games that I had pre-ordered and they leaked early. So I downloaded it, put it on my jailbroken Wii. I got the game. I put it on my shelf. I didn't do anything wrong. I paid for it. You legally got it. So yeah, you could definitely call me a dirty pirate, but my money is already at the developer. So, you know, or, or the band or whatever else, you know? Well, uh, most of my professional life revolved around trying to get stuff I really loved as soon as possible. I worked at a used CD store back when those existed. And that was, we would get stuff in from uh, radio stations uh, before the CDs were out. They would have promo copies with not for resale printed on them. And if it was a band I loved, that was, you know, my version of a pub server was waiting for the DJ from the local station to just dump off his extra promo CDs. And boom, I had the newest Nine Inch Nails or whatever it was I wanted to listen to, you know, weeks early. Um, so I've always been passionate about getting access to the content that I want to play and then dumping as much of my paycheck possible to either paying for the artists, creators, coders, developers who make the cool stuff I love or the technology that enables me to continue loving past, present and future stuff. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, we might be pirates, but we're not the bad kind. The bad kind, I, you know, just my opinion, a lot of people disagree, but the people that download games and play them aren't aren't the evil people because you know maybe they should have paid for them maybe they were broke and there's no way they could have played and paid for them anyway it's the people who download a bunch of roms put it on an sd card and sell it on ebay those are the ones that i really have a problem with because you know what you do for yourself is one thing but profiting off of stolen stuff especially things that are still sold today that's the ones that I really get pissed about and I, I really just never would condone. That's a fa- it's a fascinating wave because I'll go and look at all of these different Switch-like retro-minded uh, Android emulators that pop out where you just throw a few bucks extra and get ROMs. I'm like, how, how does that not get stomped out? Like that is that line I always thought was just, boom, that just doesn't happen. But I will say the studies have basically shown the research it's it's not 100% conclusive but the line is if you are going to the trouble of looking for and accumulating libraries of any software present or past you are the kind who is tuned to understanding what those ecosystems are and investing in them and ultimately paying money into them that's just how it has always historically gone i mean you take frank cefaldi an admitted mega pirate who worked uh, in preserving and restoring ROMs as much as possible back in the day. He wasn't doing that because he was just trying to save a few bucks. He was doing that mm. because that was where his general entertainment budget went. So you, you go to anyone else and you talk to them about GoldenEye or Tecmo Bowl or these sort of high-level popular Western games, they don't even bother looking for that stuff they don't know how to go to you know certain dot org websites and grab those roms and they don't spend money inside of that world as opposed to someone else like you and me who might be fluent in exactly how to get every single version of any playstation one or saturn game and figure out exactly how to make sure it's patched right with a specific english english patch and getting the right retro arc settings to get it going in the right core and then boom from there the right fpga box we are investing in those ecosystems, that money is going into games of the past, present, and future. So that's the distinction I think is really important. When anyone says, oh yeah, I'm just trying to get a file. No, it's, I'm, this is a lifestyle. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. 
Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. And the money goes into it appropriately. And the more you respect that kind of consumer, the more they're going to stick around. And that's something I think is really missing. Uh, this is a tangent I love to go off. Sorry, I don't think you no, even began. No, with. I love it. But Keep basically, this is any smart gaming company that has a portfolio of 10 20 30 years of games would do really well to go to those players and go oh you're already jumping through all those hoops here's what we have for you that's up to your standard because they already have the resources to make that pretty cheap for them in terms of internal work uh to make all of that kind of stuff you know accessible uh and and it just bums me out when certain companies (laughs) sega just don't get that right yeah, you know, um, in in my experience from back in the '90s to now, it, most of the time, if somebody has money to spend, they're not on a super limited budget. The people that download these ROM packs and put them on, you know, not don't buy the the preloaded card, but download them themselves, make their own cards. It always leads to them buying more stuff. Always. You know, it's very rare that people will just download this and never care anymore. Or if they did, they downloaded it, used it for five minutes and never use it again. So it's not, you know, you weren't going to get that sale, but it's much more likely that people are now getting into it. So now they go visit their local retro gaming stores and, you know, they figure out which games that they like. And no, they're not going to spend $15,000 on the AES copy of Neo Turf Masters. They'll steal that one. But, you know, hey, they got themselves a Neo Geo and look, there's a beautiful boxed AES copy of you know world heroes 2 up there for 100 bucks yeah i'll buy that and it's always led to more exactly as you said more investment into the ecosystem and it's just it's frustrating because if you look at artists like burt kreischer said that he i think he i don't think he leaked his dvd but somebody else did of him telling the the machine story and it got leaked throughout russia and he's selling out places that he's never sold a single thing in before so not only did it make him more money than DVD sales, it, his popularity went through the roof and it was a snowball effect. So I wish video game companies would realize like, you know, some of the like the Atari, um, the Atari collection that was really well done. You know, that's uh, Rich Whitehouse worked on that. You know, there's a lot of good emulation on that. That's a great example of a positive way. But some of the Genesis collections, you know, seven to ten frames of lag on Sonic the Hedgehog, mm-hmm. like. It's not a representation of the game. Well, somebody and, and all those companies, all those companies know that that stuff exists. I mean, there's not even a question that those companies aren't familiar with the kind of efforts that purists go to to make sure that they are playable to a certain standard. So I really do. I, I understand that there's certain old guard folks at the top of certain companies that make these kind of releases not happen, which bum me out. But like you just mentioned, uh, Atari 50 is a really good example. That's a really interesting topic, by the way. I don't know how much news you are reading as we are recording this today. Did you hear about what happened with the creators of Atari 50? Yeah. Um, so I heard that Digital Eclipse is being bought by Atari, but that was all I heard. And then I've just been I've been working since about 4 a.m. this morning. So this would, this, <laughs> I day. would I would happily chat about this. Uh, yeah. Fire basically, away. Uh, it looks like it's a, the latest Atari acquisition deal where they've gone in as their current sort of corporation, uh, the one that I know was really excited about NFTs a few years ago, which had everyone kind of going, uh, and then maybe some sort of NFT slash casino activation stuff would had people go, uh, but now they seem to be pivoting in a direction of going, well, if we are Atari 
and were about specifically playable things that reach into the past but still have sort of a present interest why don't we build a company in that shape so the first acquisition that really stood out was night dive studios and i can't remember how many months ago this happened but night dive has been very popular as of late to take uh, vintage barely used ip uh, specifically console and pc releases from the 90s and early 2000s and touch them up and re-release them so that they just work either on a console or on your current pc uh, then uh the current Atari bought or acquired Atari Age, which you could probably describe way better than I could in terms of all of the different stuff it touches. But notably, they seem to have a real interest in the homebrew community that Atari Age is a part of. Uh, the language from that acquisition really talked about the kind of games that are made by that homebrew community, um, which are all you know in the legal free and clear as far as I can tell of what's mm. made. And that Atari may activate that one way or another. And now... Atari's come in and said, digital eclipse, uh, purveyors of restoration in old games, taking old software and finding new and interesting ways to present it. And that's really interesting because digital eclipse and night dive are agnostic. They are not only Atari or only Sega or only specific PC publishers. They're really interested in working with whoever else out there just needs their vintage licenses or vintage games touched up and represented. And so Digital Eclipse is interesting because uh, not only was Atari 50 a great compilation last year, along with the Ninja Turtles Cowabunga, Cowabunga collection. I can't even say the word. It's so exciting. Um, <laughs> but this year they've got um, the Gold Master series, which is Karateka, uh, the Jordan Mechner game that uh, preceded Prince of Persia. They put out a really nice set of, well, it's not the best game, but it's influential for reasons. And by presenting all of these different slices of interviews, of prototypes, of comparisons to stuff that was current of the time, uh, that was cont contemporaneous at the time. Uh, Jordan Mechner's father, who's still alive, coming in and playing the piano at his old age and talking with Jordan about the making of all of this context, making it like a history exhibit. Um, Digital Clips has a formula that's really interesting. Um, but I don't know that Karateka actually really lit up sales. If you go into Steam, you can see it didn't. It doesn't have a lot of reviews. It doesn't have a lot of concurrent players. But it's a really fantastic release. Um, and they also just put out a, a early access version of Wizardry One for PC, um, which actually I believe is doing better in terms of sales and review numbers and things like that. So. I do wonder, digital clips now being part of Atari is going to be interesting, um, but hmm. I do wonder how much of that was because Wizardry and Karateka didn't light up the sales like they'd hoped or whatever else might have been happening with digital clips. But this is an interesting time for Atari to exist. I don't know from your, uh, based on what I just am babbling here, what you've noticed about Atari from your end and what you've been thinking. I've kind of been laughing at him for the past couple of years. That last console, you know, it's it's funny. Um I've been doing this a long time. I've also been doing product development, both for retro gaming, but before that for years for a medical company. So my perspective on things, on the one hand, I'm just some fat guy with a webcam telling my opinions. But on the other hand, a lot of these opinions come from me making the same mistakes that I'm watching some other companies do. And, you know, sometimes I very often I try to jump in and help. I always offer my help for free. Atari's like company, or, yeah, companies like Atari wouldn't listen to me anyway, but so I see a lot of the stuff that they did and I just, I kind of laughed and went, that's never going to work. And you know, the Amico, I called bullshit from day one and I got attacked every time I brought it up. But so I, to the point where I just stopped talking about it and uh, the Atari one, I kind of called, 
I, I knew it was going to release, but I thought it was going to suck. And it did suck. And the NFT thing just became a joke. And then when they re-released the 2600, I I thought it was one of two things. I thought it was, I think I used the Al Bundy. I scored four touchdowns and won the game. And that's the only thing I've ever done that was ever worth talking about. I kind of, I used that example thinking like, is this really just one last hurrah? You release your, your console and then you're going to just destroy the IP? Or is that a step in a new direction that you're heading? And when they bought Atari Age, I thought, well, what they're really buying is the all of the community that would be willing to sell their homebrew it, that already has all of the boxes and everything all done ready as Atari products. So I thought, okay, so maybe it's just a continuation of that. But now buying Digital Eclipse, you know, maybe they are actually starting to get back into gaming and starting to do so by just embracing their existing audience, which would be props to them because a lot of companies don't don't do that or they right. skim over their existing audience not realizing that's their money right there well i haven't i only briefly messed with the 2600 um actually i didn't mess with it it was just sitting under glass at pax west uh, just a mm -hmm. few months ago so yet to really go hands-on to see what it is doing in terms of appropriate performance uh accessibility ease of pickup and play but also um being worthy of that original branding and what you expect in terms of uh emulation because i assume it's an emulation box even though it's taking cartridges um but what's th that technique that whole concept of it comes with games in it it's preloaded like your nes classic and you can also just take your old dusty carts which are super cheap you can't uh, if you are a retro collector well if you're not a retro collector if you just go into a used game store that's where the cheap stuff is is the the 2600 so this interesting activation attempt to take what's basically become dormant which is to say the classic system the mini system they had their peak with nes and super nes and then there's just there isn't a whole lot of interest there isn't a whole lot of money in it and now that the, the demand i think is for more powerful systems that's really hard to get the margins on you can't sell a saturn mini that's going to actually be any good for less than probably 350 bucks and right. you know break even especially for the saturn not necessarily having a ton of possibility in your random uh airport kiosk or mm. starbucks starbucks or where people actually go to physically buy any sort of entertainment or gift so atari is sort of this i i, I could go a bazillion directions but when we talk about atari atari that exists right now is trying to get our small core of passionate retro-minded fans excited and activated but that's not where their money is. Their money, they've always known, has been getting the random guy or girl who thinks the Atari logo and uh, and font looks good on a T-shirt and going with that mindshare and making money off of that audience. Um, mm. But clearly that wasn't working previously in terms of the prior boxes they've sold and the NFT attempt BS and things like that. So I'm curious whether this is the right way of having a retro box that still takes old cartridges, that feeling of uh, giving a kid a physical cartridge and having them put it in, which doesn't happen anymore in any other product. Nintendo's not selling a NES cartridge compatible box. Uh, yeah. And I'm not saying this is anecdotal on my part, but my stepkids, they are stoked about physical media. They're eight and 11 and they take a CD or they take a cartridge and that's a whole thing. And is that actually an angle by which Atari could get families excited and sell products at stores? I'm not sure. 
but it's an interesting move from their part and also honestly a cheap one i don't know that they spent a lot of money on digital eclipses um expertise and know-how and really solid uh, digital master concept i don't know that they spent that much money on atari age i don't know that they spent that much on night dive they're they're not buying ip they're buying expertise and that, right. if you can just assemble that expertise, and then you already, as Atari, have a bunch of IP and have a bunch of access to that stuff, and then slowly chip away and getting small fry fare added on, then you're going in a direction that the Intellivision Amico is the total opposite of, where they didn't have expertise. They only had um, little Android bits book. of IP that hadn't really done work. Like, that's the thing is, it, you know, they really, at the, because I've talked about the Intellivision Amico a lot. That was one of the big subjects that I covered. But they just never really had anything that yeah. made sense of, okay, we're getting these sort of things for a song and we're going to assemble it in a way that's attractive. Everything just looked very ramshackle. And Atari, on the other hand, seems to be assembling a package that you and I could talk excitedly about for 10 minutes. And that's not bad. That's a not bad thing for them to then carry. Like they could take what we're saying right now and take it to, I don't know what retailers are still exist in physical retail, um, but they'll go to any of them and say, hey, look, there's the passion. Please carry this box on your sh uh, shelf space next to magazines and candy before people get onto a plane. Like, I don't know. Well, I don't know where people buy things physically anymore. So all good points, but they have an opportunity here to do something that I don't think any other company has really done. And that what if they say something like this console comes out and they say, hey, we're going to be re-releasing some brand new Atari 2600 games. You can buy them separately, but go to your retro store, go to your local retro store, check out the 2600 games they have, check out the accessories they have. And, you know, if you don't see the console there, ask why. Now you're doing two things. Now you're trying to grow an audience of a, a new, uh, you know, a renowned love for physical media, but you're also trying to send business to local game stores who right now say, you know what, you should buy this HDMI Atari 2600. And there's the list of games over there. And, you know, so they, they could really capitalize on physical media in a way that embraces everybody that leads back to Atari. Cause then if they start making even cooler controllers and, you know, license some Hyperkin stuff. The Hyperkin controllers were great. I mean, credit where credit's due. You know, their clone consoles are kind of garbage, but their controllers have been very solid. I, I love the spinner controller one that they had. So, you know, then start talking to the game stores and say, hey, will you take our, our shirts too? People love a good Atari shirt. And, you know, what about these controllers? And they might be able to build a, a new audience around existing stock and make everybody happy. And if they did that successfully, what could be next? You know, imagine uh, uh, the Atari Jaguar 2 or something like that. And, you know, it, it's ridiculous and funny, but it's also like it would work. Well, you, you make a good off. point about there's nobody else who's going to retro game stores and saying, here's a reliable official box that you plug in. You know, there we never got Polymega. That never wound up really appearing in yeah. retro stores as like potentially but that was i think one of the possibilities was they could have been in these retro-minded stores where there's physical product i mean like here's a thing that you could get at the retro mom and pop store where there's one in every big city in the united states or like five at least in C there's so many in seattle um so like i think the point you made is really interesting and now whether they actually have the production capacity and the um uh, sort of relationships with retailers and can really get to them and quickly get them product and sell it at 
you know, set the prices in a certain way where retro sh- shops will actually want it because they make very good margins on that used stuff. So that would be interesting to see whether their leadership is poised to do that. But on the reputation building, software library building, and masters of retro gaming reputation side, they're, I, I'm, I am intrigued is what I would say. Yeah. Yeah. You know, another thing that they could do is uh, intellectual property rights and design rights have lapsed for the original NES. So as long as they don't call it the Nintendo Entertainment System, they could even take um, that new FPGA core that runs on a very cheap uh, FPGA. You could build that into a motherboard and potentially for somebody with the manufacturing power of Atari, you could build a $99 NES that takes original cartridges and might even have wi-fi capabilities and stuff like that so if they were able to capitalize on that and take all of the stuff that they're legally allowed to sell and you know they have the lawyers to do it right i think this could be this could be a pretty big market did See, you, you should have bought retro did, rgb as well come on what are you did, doing i'm right, right. here but today <laughs> they should call it the tengen entertainment system that'd be hilarious that would that would that be oh that sounds like a good time. So yeah, I would love to see where all of this goes, whether Digital Eclipse will specifically have Atari-specific stuff or whether other retro or, or vintage game license holders will be comfortable having Atari be part of it or not. I mean, I'll be curious how Night, I mean, how night Dive goes, I think will indicate how Digital Eclipse goes because that Night mm-hmm. Dive acquisition happened a while ago. They currently have, um, I think they've got a Turok, I think Turok 3, or uh, yeah, I think that's one of theirs that's uh, lined up along with others. Like they're still moving full steam ahead. So, so long as Atari doesn't blow up their existing reputations, that'll be interesting to see. But yeah, I'm stoked. And I look forward to you becoming their official hardware <laughs> FPGA consultant. <laughs> Somebody at Atari reach out, please. At the very least, buy me lunch and I'll just point you in the right direction. But uh, yeah, uh, interesting to see how some of this stuff is going to pan out. Um so I was curious to go back. You said you worked uh, as a music journalist for a while as well. Um, what was that like? What, what genre of music? Um, you know, any any fun stories from that? Uh, I ran the music section for a Dallas paper before I be- came to Seattle. And while I was there, it was mostly local bands. It was back when people actually picked up physical papers and flipped them open to see where you went to go to shows there was the one place that had all of the club listings and all of the whether it was bands or dancing or whatever you wanted to do that was what you did you grabbed the paper that was conclusive it had everything my first job was actually just to call every single club and double check their listings uh because their websites might be broken or their emails might not happen so it was just my job to sort of pound the payment be like who is playing this week uh, before I went on to just review bands on the regular basis, I don't have a lot of cool like rock star style stories because if it was a national band, I might just go see them. I didn't, you know, get snuck backstage to see the Rolling Stones or, or things like that. I did while I was at Paper. I also helped out with their just nightlife section, and I got to interview random people. I got to interview Colin Mockery from Whose Line Is It Anyway? Because he was doing mm. stand-up, and so that was maybe the nicest interview I ever did. And then the worst interview I ever did was Dustin Diamond, who played Screech oh. on Say by the Bell and was doing stand-up comedy. And it was I could hear crickets on the line because he would tell a joke, and he would stop talking, and I'd realize, oh, he was telling a joke. Um, but on the music side of things, the stand-up the- was like that too. He came local to me a couple of times and I didn't go and a couple of my friends did. And they just said it was, it was painfully awkward. <laughs> I don't pity the life of a child television star in the United States, but I also feel like he could have taken some of his child 
acting money and spent it on a friend who had good advice. But what can you do? Rest in peace, Dustin Diamond. Um, <laughs> but um, what I found was it forced me to go into venues and stand near bands, take little notes before I wrote a review, and then see them again in person. And I think a lot of critics don't really have that experience when it comes to interfacing with someone who's making art and getting up there and putting it out. It was really easy for me when I was a 15, 16, 17-year-old to just talk crap about Midway and Acclaim games like I just did earlier. Um, but as I got older, I, I started to say, oh, if I th there's repercussions for my words. Not that I like had power to make or break lives, but more that there was there was more accountability in that side of scene, that kind of small tight knit scene of how you write about art, how you write about people being brave enough to get on a stage and make and produce a thing. And when I got back into games writing, it was a lot about smaller fry teams getting out there and being economically viable game again with steam and other platforms make it easy to bypass best buy and target and circuit city and whatever else existed at that time and put out games um and so that was really the thing that that really was important to me was going okay i i could write out a funny phrase that talks crap about a, a failure in a game or I could try and understand who this might be useful and important to. And I think when you look at some of the worst reviews that are legendary on the internet, like IGN talking crap about God Hand, you're kind of looking at a critic who's just existing in their own online, my computer and nothing else bubble, as opposed to engaging, not just with the community of people reading, but the community of people creating and being inspired by games and moving on again. Every game has someone who loves it for whatever reason. And mm even when you do not like a game or even when a game really fails, there's got to be that heart in it. Unless it's a producer who clearly dumped some terrible microtransaction crap into the making of a game, in which case there's no, um, there's no kindness there. At some point you have to draw the line and say a human didn't make this game a massive hu hum humanity less corporation did. So like that was sort of what writing about music really changed for me as I moved back into tech journalism. You know, I, um, it's it's funny. I'm glad to hear you talk that way too, because I didn't realize that I did this until you know a couple of years into retro RGB. But I guess I kind of always envisioned myself on the other end of this. Envisioned myself reading a post or watching one of my videos, and I always realized the consequences for my actions. And I think that's from losing a whole bunch of fights as a kid. When you get your ass kicked, you uh, you very suddenly realize things that you do affect other people so i, I kind of took that with me and um one of the only ones that I, I i got one part of a hyperkin review wrong but the product was trash so i didn't feel that bad i actually did apologize to him but uh but there was one that i did that i just i couldn't understand anything about the product and it was a terrible video it trashed the product and i just i emailed the owner of the company it was like hey look i just about to release a bad review but i, I something doesn't feel right at all would you talk to me about this? And that person had every right to tell me to just fuck off and die and never talk to me again. But he instead jumped on a Skype call and walked through every one of my complaints. And some of my complaints I got wrong. I didn't see the way he was looking at it. It was actually a, a really creative way to solve the problem. Others were still complaints, but when it was when the product was released a couple of years earlier, we didn't have some of the tools that we had when I did the review. So 
that completely changed that section. And I'm sure this person's still kind of annoyed with me to this day, but I also appreciate their patience because I redid the whole review and it was fair. It was 100% fair. Hey, here's the things that don't really hold up, but here's why. And it actually might be a good thing if you're this person, but if you're this person, you could upgrade it here. And I always take that so seriously. And that's why anybody uh, who gets annoyed if I get too hard in a negative review, 99% of the time, it's because I know something more that I don't really want to talk about publicly. Because I try to keep it to the nerd facts, but like when I actually know that somebody cloned something, but I don't, you know, I don't have $50,000 to start a legal battle that's not going to end at 50 grand just to not, you know, just to not be able to finish that and not win. Like I don't, I, I'm trying to be very careful with with some of the drama side. And I also am terrified of being labeled a drama channel. The thought mm. of some chubby white guy yelling into a camera just makes me want to throw up mm. that, that might be me. People might be perceiving me that way, but yeah, it's uh, my negative reviews are, I take very seriously. Well, hard hardware is such a weird category because it's consumer journalism, meaning you're there doing what you can with the one product you got. So mm -hmm. you're not, uh, you know, you're not out there uh, on the front lines of a war reporting. Like journalism is a word where it's, it's. I, I mean, I've gone and just taken a video game and reviewed it, and someone called me a journalist. I'm like, I mean, kind of, but no. Um, but there's other times where you really are digging into a product, but then you can only speak to so much of it. How many of those are actually getting shipped out? Did you get a sweetened? A piece of hardware because you're a critic is yours shipped in a way where it doesn't wind up being banged up and uh, affect the way that other people would get it i mean it's interesting um to be on the other side of just ordering things uh, uh it, placing an order as a non-member of the press is one of those things that every really good hardware critic should be capable of doing and that gets really expensive it gets really mm. hard out there to find that line between how do i get access to product to accurately talk about it but then am i going to burn all the bridges where then i don't get that access to talk about all of it and then i got to spend all of my own money and put together my own channel with my own limited resources it's this constant battle that nobody's really seeing when they're just quickly going on a search engine and being like tell me what the nice thing is Tell me if it's good yeah. enough. And then go into a forum and be like, that guy didn't tell me that exact answer good enough. I hate him. Um, like It's yeah. a very weirdly fraught category that's really just about plugging something into our television in order to get way more crisp pixels out of our favorite old games. It's like amazing how this very like uh, innocent pursuit of hardware preservation can turn so fraught. But it's ultimately on the hardware side, there's this basic universe of... Uh, taking the thing that's in your hand and then trying to project out what's that going to be for anyone who actually spends a bunch of money to buy it for themselves. Like production yields, are they actually going to get you this product when you, can you really review that? Um, you know, I actually fake spot is a really interesting, uh, um, extension on web browsers. I only recently found it. And it's so funny to go to places like analog, uh, you go to analog site and fake spot has a lot of red flares that pop up of people going, I stuff never arrives and it doesn't appear. And that's such a part of the conversation that doesn't enter the review nexus because for a lot of big sites, you're just trying to get the big review out in time for the embargo, as opposed to the follow-up messaging. I know we was just talking about like music journalism and I'm moving now into hardware and all this stuff. No, that's fine. But, the, but the thing that I will always remember is when Kotaku made a pledge 
We are going to write about games as a, serv- as a service. We're going to do constant updates about popular online video games. And then they backed down because this is sort of an inside baseball thing on journalism. There's no traffic in the constant trickle of little updates. It's that big popping headline that Google News and other aggregators will make appear magically on your phone and that you go, oh gosh, I got to look at that. I got to see. I mean, that happened to me this morning with Digital Eclipse. I found mm. out because my phone decided that that was important to me and told me to go, oh, that's a big deal. As opposed to, you know, digital clips puts out, puts out a patch for wizardry that would never pop up on my phone in that same way. So in the world of hardware reviews, which I know that you're very invested in, I don't know how you balance that out. I'm curious as you play with whether it's, uh, you know, a, a, a single hobbyist to making a thing or a smaller organization or larger organizations, how you balance out that sort of conversation about hardware from your limited vantage point. So uh, that's where I have a huge advantage being somebody who was in software ma- or hardware manufacturing even before I started retro RGB. And when it's when it's the single developer, you know, out of the garage doing this stuff, I'm way more forgiving, but I'm also way more realistic. And the one or two times I was a little bit too nice about things, it did kind of blow up. So I'm never, never doing that again. But I remember one guy told me production would be ready in a month. And I'm like, it's three months for anything especially like that. And that product never got released anyway, but I'm, I'm forgiving, but I'm also honest. And more often than not, the developers will hear my opinions on that and like send a thank you note. Like, Hey, I really appreciate that perspective. I'm trying so hard to get it out by the end of the year, but you know, there's this, there's that, there's the other thing. So I, I try to, I try to really paint a clear picture for people with stuff like that. And when it's constant failures, there's constant teasing and you know unfortunately people love to make that into drama but i I tease analog all the time about that i also equally praise how much i've always liked their products ever since kevtris joined stuff before that was a little scary that they even sold it but uh, uh it's uh you know it's so it's it's just transparency and honesty for me and that's the the two things that just get you in in the most trouble and get you the least amount of money so it's it's, yeah but that's the thing that matters most is just getting the right answer out. And then equally as important is being the first person to fly the flag when I screw up and be like, I screwed up. Here's what I did wrong. Here's why I messed up. And here's how I'm going to try not to do that again. So yeah, that's, that's basically it for me. Well, while I've got you on the line, I'll ask one more question and you throw it oh, back fire at me. Away. Uh, just conversations. when you, as you look at everything that exists in taking, either classic or modern games and making them playable, what is the most exciting product category that you think average, uh, non, anyone who would never subscribe to your channel, someone who the algorithm, because the algorithm makes you not exist because they're into different stuff, but they're familiar with just higher level pop culture nuggets about technology. What is the stuff that you see that's being made for gaming preservation that you think is the most exciting or interesting that will actually potentially trickle out to a wider audience. And you're welcome to answer that in whatever way you think of, because I'm open to, to your interpretation um, of that. So what does exist and what could exist are, are going to have to have two answers to this. Love it or hate it, analog pocket, no doubt. If they found a way to keep that thing in stock, and I do not think it is overpriced, but if they somehow got a way to get it back down to 199 I think that's the number one thing that people who don't care so much about retro would love because it's like how many people uh how many people love game boy and game boy advance games and even people who might not necessarily have been alive when some of those games were released 
now you have a handheld physical thing that only plays those games. You can't get sucked into a text message chain or something else. I, I think that right now is the number one potential for people jumping in. Um, I think there are other products. I think what they're missing big time on the Genesis, the Super Nintendo, besides the fact that you can't buy it, is it doesn't look like a Genesis or a Super Nintendo. And I think that's super important because that's not just brand recognition. Even if you're 20 years old and you, you never even knew what that was, if you're into gaming, you've seen the pictures. But that definitely is the nostalgic gateway drug to get. The, that's why those mini consoles sell so well. You know how many people I know bought those things because they wanted the little mini trinket on their desk that looks like a Genesis or something? So I think what's missing from the market is essentially what Atari is doing if they do it right. Hopefully they, they spent a little bit of money to, to make that console correctly. But I think what's missing from the market is a lower entry point, but good recreation of original consoles. And I, I think that's something that would get people in the door because people that don't care about weekly updates and people that would never in a million years spend a couple of hundred bucks to buy an HDMI mod to pay a modder 125 to then go buy a console that you need to recap. Like most people are not going to drop 500 plus dollars on older consoles to have HDMI outputs. But what if it was 99 and what if there was no lag other than your TV's lag? It doesn't matter how great it is. Just does not filled with bugs, not filled with lag, plug it in and play original cartridges. Um, I think that would be a, a product line that would, I mean, that's a Walmart product line. And I mean that as a compliment, not as, not as a dig. That's something yep. that you walk in on the holidays and you're getting your shopping and you're getting some clothes and it's like, oh shit, cousin Jimmy used to love Sega Genesis. $99, great. At Games kind of ruined that for everybody, by the way. They tried to do that. Um, Matt, from um, who, the developer of Tanglewood, actually made a thing in his game where if you plug it into an At Games console, uh, the text goes red on the title screen just to, as a, a fun warning of this is going to be a terrible experience. That's so right. I think that would be huge. I think, um, you know, I think if analog would move from the FOMO model to a Walmart model, if they could afford to do so, I think that would be pretty massive. Um, or any company that wanted to step up and take any of the Mr. Cores and try to spin those off in a different way. As long as they follow the open source terms, people could get as annoyed as they want. It doesn't matter. They're doing it legally and they're they're doing it the right way. So that's what I'm hoping for. That's it. Yeah, I I like where you're going with that. And it's interesting that PlayStation to me is what kind of was the post at games ruiner. That PlayStation one box, like it just didn't sell. It's so yeah. interesting because you could think that uh, uninformed enthusiasm for that brand could have driven sales of that tiny ps1 so we have reached a point where something like that still has to perform decently it can't just yeah. come out and have the old brand like people will still in an online world at least double check online to make sure it's not bunk you know people it's it's a different world than when my mother bought me donkey kong 3 for the nes and said it's donkey kong and i said no it's a bug man spraying stuff into donkey kong's butt that's not the same game mom <laughs> you know it's a different world in terms of gaming gift giving so that is i do think that you're on to something when you're like it just if it passes critical muster to a certain level and then could just activate that kind of classic gaming for fans uh, the, the nintendo i've found has always been in a weird spot as the holder of the most lucrative recognizable software and hardware and mm. because the wii u tanked 
That's what got us to the NES and Super NES Classic. Without the Wii U's, Wii U's failure, they would have never scrambled. They would have never done that because they'd much rather you buy into their newest platforms that look new that get you to buy a bunch of games. And sure enough, NSO, Nintendo Switch Online, had them rest that back and say, do you want NES, Super NES, and other systems? You have to do it in this tiny app icon that exists among all the others and gets kind of lost in clustered. It's not elegant. You hand a switch to a kid and say, you want to play Super Mario Brothers? They'll get to it, but it's not as simple as handing them the NES Classic. I would love if whatever their Super Switch or Switch 2 or whatever they're going to call it had some kind of way to get there. I don't see them doing that because they're pretty clear in that approach, but I would love if they had some sort of means to just hit the retro button or have it look retro or have that be a separate product category. And that doesn't mean that they totally own the space. And I love what you suggest about Atari just stealing that thunder because there are legal ways to do it. That would be, honestly, yeah. that would be amazing PR for them to put it out and then have all the thing pieces be like, can Atari really get away with this? I mean, yeah. I, would, I would write that article. Yeah, but uh, uh, even even to that extent too, Nintendo could get as pissed as they want if they had the Tengen Entertainment System. Uh, but all of those people putting that Super Mario Brothers cart in and you know pressing the cart down and hitting power, what do you think they're going to be interested in next year? Well, Super Mario Wonder just came out. Oh, hey, there's a new Switch coming out. So that's one of those things where Nintendo could uh, could cry as long as much as they want, but all it's going to do it, it potentially would just boost more sales of the same of, of the same ip you know mario zelda metroid all that other stuff so it's uh it's kind of interesting to see all this stuff unfold but i hope I've, I've talked to companies about that before um and it was really disappointing to see certain people's um certain companies perspective on this it really confirmed my disdain for some of these companies because mm. it really is just about like well i'm not spending the extra money yeah but it's not a lot of extra money and it could lead to way more money. Yeah, but we're selling now. So why should we change? Okay. Goodbye. I mean, we just, if you look at the video game news of the past couple of weeks here in October, 2023, you can see exactly what happens at these companies, this absolute terror about whether or not they're getting quarterly growth knocked out and that pressure. And it turns in this weird soup where it's like, we're going to have tons of money coming in, but because someone insisted on aggressive growth meaning someone is passing around powerpoints in internal emails that nobody at a fan site is ever going to see and because mm -hmm. those metrics don't get hit people get laid off so you end up with this incredible in my opinion retro opportunity to take old ip and find ways to do something new with it or take your current ip and apply it to older hardware and older generations there's all kinds of creative ways where these companies could do things like that and because I mean, I don't want to be, you know, average internet dude talking about capitalism, but boy, oh boy, does that really bum me out when, when cool things don't happen because of the conversations that don't get publicly shown. But I have seen, you and I have had different versions of seeing uh, the internal grousing that never makes the light of day. But that's what ends up happening when you look at why is company X not doing this logical thing, like, because some jerk at the top is sending dumb emails demanding unrealistic growth. So, yeah. Um, I wanted to ask, well, I might be saying it wrong. I always said ARS Technica. Is it Ars Technica? Ars Technica, it means uh, the art of technology. Old, they were very obsessed with Latin when they founded that site. So I have to be very clear, and this is positive, don't worry. Uh, I just have to be very clear that uh, my 
website has had every single major tech blog copy and paste giant chunks of it, including some of my, my grammar mistakes, including links back to that they forgot to delete and pass it off as their own work. And Ars Technica has never done that. They are the only place that has ever consistently linked back to me. To, and that that is such a huge thing for me, where if you copy an entire page of my website, and at the top and bottom, just be like, hey, you know, we got this from retrorgb.com, and at the bottom, put a link to it. In my very strong opinion, that is not stealing, that is promoting and, and helping spread the word. So, um, and uh, Ars Technica has never copied an entire post. They've just, they've kind of quoted me here and there. So I've always had love for, for everybody who's worked there. And I've always paid attention because I just, I, ever since I started the site, I have nonstop, there hasn't been a month that's gone by. I started telling people to stop doing this, but there hasn't been a month that's gone by that I haven't gotten a text message from somebody that says, here's one of your posts up on insert big tech blog here. But also, they do it all the time with Ars Technica and say, hey, they quoted you again. Hey, they remembered to link back. So um, I was just also interested to talk to you because of that, because, you know, is that is it just luck that they hired the right people or is it part of their culture that you oh. don't steal? Um, how do I answer this without going on in my own spiel forever? First off, all journalists, anyone who makes a living writing out and doing journalism should be able to just take their time and produce original reporting. That to me is what journalism should be and that everyone gets paid for it and that readers are then paying for that journalism. That doesn't exist because Google, that's really the beginning, middle and end of it. Google broke all of that by saying, we are the box. We have all the information. You type a word in, you shake that box, and what you want to know is going to appear. And therefore, you end up with this mad dash of people all trying to get to the top of that box and at the very least, scrape some ad revenue. Because nobody is going to pay for, I mean, there are exceptions where people go, I'm committed to the journalism of such and such outlet, so I will subscribe to it. But there's not a ton of that in the great scheme of things, if you really look at how many people read journalism for free versus how many people pay for it. So when someone at a big journalism site is underpaid and has to produce a certain amount of content per day that gets picked up by the Google, um, I mean, there's certainly other places where people find information. I'm not going to pretend that social media and other things don't exist, but let's be clear, Google outranks all of them. If right, you are ever yeah. wondering until, until something major happens, it's not Facebook, it's not the site twitter.com whatever it's called now it's not any of these others it is google so if you are an underpaid overworked journalist trying to meet your quota of number of articles per day or per week and then you see something that you know is going to rise to the top because it's been popular it's been in a trend and you know it's going to consistently get you traffic you will go to that journalist and take their original reporting and put it up and rewrite it and maybe put your own spin on it or just steal it outright that is a broken model that there is no solution for because we have all gotten used to that kind of free information. I, I remember doing some consulting once with a company that wanted very much for other people to pay for their product, but then internally talked about how they didn't want to pay for other people's products. And I'm like, this is what ends up happening when you get so used to free content that this kind of soup happens. So any journalist can take their time to at least properly 
uh, remove wholesale copy paste quoting and add their own insight and add their own context and refer to their own reporting and add their own insider sources. But that doesn't succeed as well as wholesale theft. Wholesale theft continues to generally work and get to the top of things. I mean, goodness, how many times have you added the word Reddit to the end of a Google search just in the hopes that you get actual answers to the thing you're looking for? Because otherwise, you just get a bunch of copy-pasted SEO garbage. The internet mm. as it is, I mean, I saw I saw a thing where Dum Dum Head, that's what I call him, was like, we're going to be the ultimate website for all of the things you do, including commerce and including... Uh, you can guess who I mean by dumb dumb dead. We're, we're the place yeah. where you're going to go to do all of your commerce and all of your news. If it wasn't dumb dumb head saying it, I would actually kind of love a centralized place where small instant transactions could be met every time you found original information on the internet. I think that would be a really cool internet. If I could go anytime I went to your site, boom, I just threw 30 cents your way just because that was a good article and it's really hard to break the chokehold that credit card companies have and crypto as a currency is bs and a, its own problem there's no really figuring it out but i would love that until then wholesale content theft on the internet is gonna remain a problem um and it's a bummer and i am glad to talk to you because i think that you're out there doing original unique testing and putting your own spin on the world and when you talk about something you're invested in it and you can make a living doing that and you get an excited audience that recognizes understands and pays for it um, but sadly, um, it's just as easy to go to a popular forum and see somebody just copy the entirety of an article and just make it their own forum post. And then nobody at that forum is going to the reporter who did the reporting and pay them either in subscription or in ad views. Um, it's, it's, it's all a mess. And if a smarter bunch of real humans had stuck together and kept Google Reader alive and figured out a way to compensate journalists appropriately on the internet, we would not be having your content just wholesale stolen all the time. So sorry for that. I'll go fight them. No, no, no. <laughs> um, so I understand all of that. And I understand uh, it's a battle that can't be won. But what I, what I don't actually understand is why in these copy and paste scenarios do most people not add uh, here's what I found on retrorgb.com. Is it that they need their boss to think that they actually did all of this research by themselves? Is it that they just assume that every website's run by a bunch of people like them stealing from other websites and don't even think that they're actually stealing original work? Uh, is it a mistake? Is it, you know, like I just, I don't, there's so many times I take from other websites like your article and I wrote, here's this article written by Sam over <laughs> on this place. Here's my thoughts on it. And there's a lot more to it, but why don't you go read the original article? Like you should, like it does not take any effort to do that. And I, I don't feel like it makes me look bad doing that either. Yeah. What you're doing is because you're just a normal human who engages with normal people and knows that they have a lot of options out there and you're not trying to trap them. Way too many websites have policies where it's about keep them in our site. You'll you know, okay. mouse over any of, a, any of the links on an average article where they mention stuff that was clearly reported elsewhere and it'll just be like slash tag slash keyword over and over and over. They want you to just stay in their world. So linking outwardly, is going to take that away. I mean, this happens in legitimate journalism as well. I can't okay. tell you how many people I know 
who, at least in Seattle, do these really aggressive city hall and state legislature beats where they're doing the thankless work of attending really boring, dry meetings and getting the real dirt on how the city and state are run. And then the big newspaper will just rewrite it without properly attributing. This happens from the smallest scale to the biggest scale all the time. It's, and I don't, I wish that there was a better answer to how, I mean, it'd be great if American law had certain provisions that lifting uh, unique journalism and reporting from other people has to be cited a certain way, or you are like going to be cited and fined a certain way. But, but freedom of speech makes that a murky line of, well, I'm not rewriting it. I'm talking about it and there's fair use. It's, it's, there's no really solid answer other than the fact that um, fair use and free speech cover some of that stuff. But also you can just in your, for the future, if you write up a really scary sounding lawyer looking letter of please take this down because of X or otherwise we're going to take further action, stuff will actually get taken down. Like that actually does work sometimes. So it just depends on the size of the site, but ultimately, um, Ultimately, yeah, there's no full standard about it, and it stinks. And uh, I, I get attacked. I get. I think every good journalist, anybody who does real reporting, gets affected by it. And hence, I've been talking for 75 minutes about the topic. No, no, it's a, it's an interesting thing. Um, I don't know how much that's affected my bottom line, and I don't. To be honest, I don't have the time to fight any of that. The stuff that's for whatever reason bothers me more is when a YouTuber, and there's one notorious one that that a while back was saying, "I'm going to do anything to hit 100,000 subs," and I think that was their way of saying, like, I'm going to steal everybody's work, essentially what they did. But I was getting text messages once a week where this person was talking about something as if they had done the research, as if they had done the testing. And you could see their eyes in the video just reading my article word for word. They even took a product that I helped design and tried to sell it to a company, not knowing that I've been doing this for so long. As soon as it actually hit a discussion, half the room was like, isn't that Bob's? <laughs> I got the people in the room texting me like, do you know this fucking guy who's trying to sell us this thing? And it's like, so that that is far more offensive to me because the person just trying to keep their job, maybe they did put, look what I found at Retro RGB and their editor was like, get the hell out of here. We want somebody stuck in a rabbit hole on our site, not on their site. Like, so I, I while it's annoying, I, I was more curious about that. It's really the, the people who make it personal, you know, who steal the work and make it theirs and put their face in front of it and try to convince people they were the one who spent 100 hours working on some crazy ass project that I worked on. So, yeah, that's um, but that's not, you know, that, that's just people have been doing that since the dawn of time. Yeah. And you, but YouTube change YouTube changes it because that's not a process where you are working with a staff, where you're working with editors, where things are vouched, and especially those situations where another person goes, uh, we might actually be in legally dicey waters if you don't declare X or Y or Z. And then there's a status quo that gets established of, oh, well, that's been happening for 10 years, so I get to keep doing it. Yeah. yeah. And guess who's, you know, what's the company that's running YouTube that benefits from all of us giving them all that content, you know? So right. uh, ultimately, uh, I have a conclusion. And uh, it's that we just just break down Google. I actually, I will be, I do believe this is not quite the same topic, but I'll be interested to see which company will be the first in terms of media to put up a uh, anti-robot crawling um, kind of login requirement for their journalism. 
because Google's taking everything and feeding it into their AI models, just like other companies are. And Google mm. wants you to just talk to their robot instead of going to journalist sites so that they can pair it and recite the information they have. And I do wonder who's going to be the first. It's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. Because at some point, if you're the New York Times or the Washington Post or CNN, uh, and you look at Google and you're going, oh, you're just taking all of the language that's been freely searchable on the internet that happens to be ours, and you are combing it and taking it and scraping it. Um, no, thanks. You 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 yeah. don't get to do that anymore. So that may happen someday, and that's going to be a real interesting day in journalism. But we're not quite there yet, but I could see it happening soon. Fair use is an interesting thing because um, I've actually spoken to lawyers about this, including in podcasts that I've done. Fair use is a defense. It's not protection fair use doesn't mean you could go steal a bunch of stuff fair use means that if somebody sues you for stealing stuff you could try to prove that you fairly used it so i, I think it's so common for especially in you know I, I don't ever interact with these people but drama channels love to throw fair use around because they like to lie to tell people that they are what they're doing is both legal and okay because they don't want you to realize that it is not because of enough people one person's never going to fight it, but if enough people get pissed off, enough people could absolutely shut all of those people down. Uh, the stealers who read the articles out, the people who lie and harass people, all the ones who hide behind fair use are lying when they do that. So I think if the laws around fair use are, are changed to be fair, I think that would affect things, but that's not how the world works. Laws get changed when people make more money off of that so uh, the, the 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 real solution to that i think would be a class action uh movement against youtube slash google that's what would have to happen is that you would have to say that youtube has not taken enough steps to use its magical ai moderation tools which is uses to find the f word and do other kinds of things like it, which, you know, and there would be judges who might believe that because, you know, yeah, it, auto moderation can't actually check for whether things are stolen or not. But like, but that would be the thing that would change it. would be some sort of massive uh, legal action that goes after the highest, highest holder of the content, the one who benefits most because a, a liar YouTuber, I don't know this person. I, so I get to just call them liar YouTuber. I don't know who they are. There's um, millions. So, it right, you're so, not, you're, so yeah. your average liar YouTuber isn't really making that much per video really in the scheme of things, the way YouTube works, right. the way YouTube monetization works, but YouTube's making that money. So that would be the direction you go. Interesting. You know, there's so many other questions I wanted to ask. I'm not sure what your time, time frame is here. Um, uh, do we need to start wrapping it up a little bit? Can I bug you with some more journalism questions? Well, go, uh, go ahead. And, I mean, I've got like 20-ish eh, minutes, so go ahead and hit me. Okay. So I, I have heard a lot of people call, uh, refer to themselves in a positive way as a freelance journalist. And that's you, you mentioned at the beginning, that's kind of the work that you're doing now. Um, I don't know what that means. So somebody once explained to me that you, you basically have to register yourself. But, you know... I, I, after that point, is it that, and if I'm prying too much, let me know. I could happily cut this out. But does that mean you like sign contracts with websites and you write for them and you get paid per post? Does that mean like, what exactly is a freelance journalist and what does one do? Because I think a lot of people are wondering that. I have done freelance journalism since the early aughts, uh, mostly with magazines, uh, where you go to a, an editor at a magazine and you're not the full-time staff but you get uh, specifically you contract out to say, I'm going to give you this many words about this topic. 
and write out a feature for them and maybe help out with the photography. Usually not in that case, but with, with, they have their own photography stuff. Um, I actually wrote for an in-flight magazine for many years. Uh, it was one of the best paying gigs of my life. It was actually, I interviewed <laughs> Alyssa Milano for an in-flight magazine once, which was maybe one of the best interviews I ever did. I couldn't believe it. Um, she was like as nice as could be. Um, and then that's the same thing in any sort of online journalism where I will just go to a site that I know has a budget to pay freelancers. I mean, when I was an editor at Ars Technica, I would go out to freelancers and say, I don't have the time to dig into this topic. And it's a topic that you already know a bunch about. So you can already leverage your own internal know-how and resources and go and chase down this kind of review or uh, this like book reviews in particular was always difficult for me to do as a full-time editor and reporter. So um, yeah, uh, I would just go to different editors and pitch and say, this is the kind of thing I want to review or the kind of person I want to interview uh, and just run from there. So uh, easy enough. I, I, I just, I don't even have to register as a journalist per se. It's more that my track record is really publicly visible. So someone will look and see the kind of work I've done um, the kind of reporting I've done and decide whether I'm up to must, whether I'm up to their snuff in terms of both uh, my ability to write and my ability to not make things up. So, uh, mm. which are, which is a, a, an interesting juggle because both I'm not just accumulating information, but I'm also trying to present it in a way that is actually readable. Um, yeah. It's, it's, it's one of the things after doing it for this long, I really love it and it comes naturally, but it's fun talking to teenagers and students about what it is to be a journalist because you really are synthesizing a lot. Uh, it's, it's your job to try to get the truth out, but also to make sure people actually read that truth. So that doesn't mean that you make stuff up or make it more scintillating than it really should be, but more about, well, where's the human? Where's the angle? Where's the twist? Where's the story? Um, where's that sort of progression where someone starts in one box but winds up in a whole other one because of something they found or did in their life? Um, uh, so, yes, I... I I hope that journalism can continue to be a paying field, uh, but it's it's tough out there. So that's its own sort of thing. I appreciate the insight. Uh, that's that's pretty interesting. I um I toured with the idea a couple of times of, of going to different places like Ars Technica and just saying, hey, do you want a full write up on on what retro gaming is today or how to get started? But the reason I I kind of hesitated is because um, the whole article would basically be teaching people this stuff but linking to the work that I do as the next steps. So if you read the article and you're like, oh, that's neat, cool, that's fun, and you're done, great. But if you read the article and you're like, okay, but now where do I buy that thing? I already have done all that work. So uh, I don't think any of the larger places would appreciate one big ad for retro RGB on their platform. Well, what, <laughs> what you're describing is the classic um, legislative op-ed. So you're a legislator and you have an agenda and you want sort of people to know about that you will go and write an op-ed for a relevant newspaper and you essentially are kind of trying to activate citizen action in the firm of voting or being on your side or being on the side voting for you or voting for your party or believing your initiative that's classic classic uh guest contributor content so you and anyone else who's an expert on a subject should never hesitate to leverage what it is you know that you've researched that you can back up with your own prior work and go from there yeah that's interesting. Maybe I should uh, contact some of the crew there. There's a, a few of the the journalists there. Uh, we follow each other. It's uh, all seem like a, the ones that follow me at least seem like uh, very good people. So, uh, yeah. Um, all right. So I guess let's start winding it down. Do you have any any fun or silly ones? Do you have any things that stand out, especially in the gaming thing where you just like, 
one thing that pops up that always makes you laugh. I always like to end on kind of a, a happier or sillier note if possible. Uh, I, in terms of thing, I mean, are we talking about like work I've done or games I've tested or things I've, I've, I would think in your professional career, because like you saying your example before of like, what if you wrote a bad review about a band and then you had to meet the band hmm. the next time they came to town, you know, I, stuff like, I, you know, funny well, stuff, I, happy stuff. I've been really proud of the, I've been able to meet some really interesting people who make cool games or have made cool games. Um, I got to interview Ron Gilbert when uh, the Monkey Island series came back, who was an absolute sweetheart and really devoted to his craft um big fan of of what they did with that final uh return to monkey island less of a fan of what they then did uh with sea of thieves and uh, uh the the not well-known info there is that they did apparently did that disney just took that license and just threw it over to the sea of thieves team without consulting with the original creators of monkey island uh, that's less funny and more just business as usual. But my favorite in encounter with any game maker was leaving E3, walking out one day and seeing Shigeru Miyamoto being ushered into a town car. And he was that close to me. And I didn't know what to do. I just froze up and I just looked at him. And I just said, thank you. And then he looks at me and goes, thank you. And then I <laughs> go, I just again repeated, thank you. And then he repeated, thank you and got into his car that was that was as much shigeru miyamoto interaction i had there was one time that i went to kyoto on a vacation and was led into this uh taco bar in kyoto japan that had one of the best tacos of my life and i got to meet uh i think it's giles goddard who created the super mario 64 3d face at the very beginning because he had oh, wow. worked at argonaut and after argonaut and starfucks he stayed at nintendo and worked internally and I just remember him and I just talking over whiskey for like 15 minutes about the Super Mario 3D face. And he was very, very polite with my interest on this thing that was ancient by that point. Um, but I will never forget tacos and Mario 64 face. So things like that do happen. But really what I've, what I've really enjoyed is every once in a while, someone will actually say, I read and liked that thing you wrote and thank you for doing that work. There's not a lot of that out there. It's a lot of drive by. You got this one fact wrong. So therefore you're an idiot. I'm like, mm. oh, yeah, I mean, I'm not the smartest, but I'm doing my best. Um, but I mean, I would just simply say that it's really nice when I would tell anybody, whenever you have that opportunity, you don't have to do this with me. I'm okay. But whenever you read something and you actually really enjoy it, just tell the person who wrote it that you dug it because there is not a lot in their, of that in their lives, especially for most working journalists who don't have really solid editor-writer relationships and don't get a lot of feedback. Most journalists are like seven jobs in one, their own fact checker, their own editor, their own content expert, their own social media maven, all this stuff. So um, that's, that's the best stuff. So I recommend you pay that forward whenever you read any sort of nerd coverage, whether it's in their Discord or via email or anything else, just try and be like, that was actually awesome. It will make you feel better. It'll make them feel better. And then, you know, live, live, follow that principle into your life. And then always bow when you see Shigeru Miyamoto coming into a town car. Two very great stories. Um, all right. Two very quick questions. First, I have to ask, if you were in the Dallas area doing music coverage in the mid-2000s, have you ever heard of a band called The House Harkonnen? Yeah, I have. Yeah. 
Oh, their their EP with Sleep by Your Grave on there is one of my favorites. I still listen to it a couple times a year. And huh. uh, I even I emailed because I, I used to have I still have many friends in the music business, but one in particular, you, she worked at FYE and she just knew everything. It yeah. was terrifying. And she, you know, we're in the Northeast and she's like, you got to check out this band Dallas. I'm like, you know, abandoned Dallas, and yeah. uh, I she uh, sent me their MP3s, and I liked it so much that I emailed the band and bought three copies of it. Mm-hmm. I said, "Don't even send me anything; I already have the files." And uh, I didn't. I just. I, it was one of those bands that I just wish that they had gotten bigger. Uh, There's the thing I would say about certain towns that have really boisterous music scenes is that you will take, especially in the United States, there are these certain parts of the world where there are jobs, but there's not a lot of interesting culture. And if you are weird or an outsider, you all find a certain melting pot. You find the certain night district or house party scene or college or wherever it is that every weirdo can come together. And what you find is there's a cross-pollination in interests that doesn't happen in other places. So what I found when I read about music was that the hip-hop, metal, freak folk, um, cheesy pop, all of those people all came together, played shared gigs. There was actually a thing called Rock Lottery out of Denton, Texas, which is near Dallas, um, where 25 people show up to a venue, all the names go into a hat, and then the drummers, five drummers, each pick a, a four other names. They get 24 hours to come up with all of brand new material with only one cover song allowed um, by within uh, a 12-hour period. And all the money goes to charity, and they don't record it. It's just a, like a one-time only explosion of energy. They're actually doing a big anniversary show in a month. It's really cool stuff. And there's other cities that have done similar things. But I find the coolest art and music and creation comes when people can come together because they share a higher level mentality, even if they get there from wildly divergent ways. That's where I think the, the coolest art and tech and beauty and life comes from. That's awesome. Last question, by far the most important one. How can people support you? Is it just following you on social media to always click on your posts? Uh, you know, do you set up a Patreon or a Kofi or anything like that? Like, how can we keep your work going? Honestly, uh, samred.com is just where you can find anything I'm doing. Most of my recent articles are there. Contact information is there. I don't have any sort of public tip jar. I'm just out there trying to figure out what makes sense for me. Obviously, if anyone ever wants to uh, help me put together a book, no one has yet bit on my pitch of, of chasing down the Intellivision Amico and Tommy Tallarico story as a full book. I would love to do that one day, but publish Publishers are a little gun shy on associating. It's more like a Real Housewives episode than a book. <laughs> I, 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 when we were talking about keeping the humanity of people, I think that Tommy Tallarico is a very fascinating individual. I would love to sit and talk with him in a way that was not contentious and find out about where he came from and why he did things the way he did. That could be a whole other 90 minutes of conversation. But I hope that he's holding up okay. I think he plays backgammon on riverboats now. I something like that. Don't quote me. Um, but otherwise, you know, samred.com is a way to find me and talk to me and, and say hello. And uh, otherwise, just, you know, do your thing. Say hi to loved ones and take care of yourselves. Well, this was awesome. Thank you so much, Sam. I really appreciate it. I really appreciate being on. This is I'm a huge fan. So this is an honor for me. Oh, thank you so much. And we'll definitely do something like this again. Awesome. All right. Thanks, everybody.